Yes. So we'll go into the meditation very shortly. Just wanted to make one comment, um, citing one of my one of my teachers many many years ago, actually forty years ago. Uh, this was when I, went, when I was a monk and entered my first monastery in Dharmasala. We had a marvelous teacher named Gen Losangatsu, who was the abbot for the monastery. And by that time I'd heard, I'd been studying quite intensively for about three years or so, and I'd heard this phrase, all sentient beings, all sentient beings, many times, for the sake of all sentient beings, which even enlightenment, for the sake of all sentient beings. But I had to admit that when I thought of all sentient beings, really not much came to mind. When I think of Okay, people in the, in the front row, that's quite clear. I've got it. People in this room, I think I can wrap my mind around that. That's a lot of people, but I can kind of handle that. All sentient beings? 100 billion galaxies? 100 billion, 200 billion, a million? It's kind of all equally whatever, kind of vague. And so I went to my teacher and said, you know, what should, you know, in terms of actual practice, when we think of all sentient beings, what does it actually mean? What should come to mind? Because for me, it's, it's too vague, it's too general, abstract. He said, oh, all sentient beings. All sentient beings, is, that just refers to everybody you meet. Everybody who comes to mind. Everybody you encounter. And if you can develop this impartiality, this even openness of heart, a sense of connectedness, of affection, of warmth, of kindness, for every sentient being you meet. If it's, maybe you love out in some remote Eskimo village, you only meet 20 people. Okay, well, all 20 of them, you know. And that's just human beings, of course. Uh, or maybe it's, maybe it's 2,000, or maybe it's 200,000. But whatever it is, if you have that equal openness of heart without barrier for everyone who comes to mind, for everyone you encounter in daily life, that will do. That's all sentient beings. Right? So that actually really obviously made quite an impression, because I remember that conversation 40 years later, and I've cited it many times, because I find it very meaningful. And so this is the direct segue to our next session, which will start momentarily. Uh, we'll go back to this practice of tonglen. So you pronounce it tonglen. Tong is not quite D, not quite T. It's a de-aspirated tong. Len is easy, L-E-N. Tonglen, of sending and receiving. Sending, sending and receiving, sending and taking. Sending out one's thoughts of loving kindness, and may we be with the visualization. And then drawing in, that is with the, ar the arousal of compassion, drawing in, imagine relieving others of suffering and the causes of suffering. And perhaps we'll go into the deep end of the pool this time and actually imagine this coming in, but dissolving, but dissolving into the heart, right? So I shouldn't kind of try to protect you from it, from this practice, which is very powerful, very deep, very transformative. But in this context then, with just a little bit more preface, what I'd like to do for this next session is something I've done in my own practice, and I really find it, I quite like it. It seems to work quite well. And that is rather, rather than, as we attend to one sentient being or group of sentient being, a part of the, a part of the globe, part of the, the world, where we know there's a lot of suffering, a lot of pain, discord, Rather than trying to be selective and say, okay, now I'm going to focus here. Okay, I think I'm finished there. Okay, now, okay, I think I'm going to focus there. Rather than have it be so premeditated and sometimes quite methodical, there's nothing wrong with that. But an alternative is just what, this is what we'll do. We're going to just rest the awareness right in the nature of awareness, just wide open, just resting. So it's a bit of shamatha, just resting in the present moment, open, loose, without 
grasping. And then we'll shift over to the practice of compassion, eventually shift over to the cultivation of loving kindness. But rather than deliberately focusing, choosing this one and this one, just opening the awareness and see who comes to mind. See who comes to mind, right? We know this is for us, for the cultivation of compassion, of loving kindness. So with that in the back of the mind, then as we begin, just see who comes knocking on your door. An individual, a group of individuals, a place in the world where you know they're suffering, and so forth. And as soon as someone comes, then invite them in. Invite them in. You know? Let them linger. So, oh, welcome. Like somebody, like the beggar knocking on your door. Somebody, well, welcome, welcome. Let's spend some time together. And then for as long as you like. Maybe it's only 10 or 15 seconds. Maybe it's a minute or two or three, four minutes. As long as, it, as, long as you wish. And then engage in the practice. As, I'll give a bit, more, a bit more guidance to it. Until you feel that's enough for now. And then just let that appearance fade out, dissolve back into the space of the mind, and then see who's the next person comes knocking on your door. Now, a very important point, the last point before we jump in, is that when we're practicing settling the mind in its natural state, and an image, let's say, of a person comes to mind, quiz time, I'm really hoping to get the right answer. An image of some person comes to mind. It happens quite frequently, right? So there you are, just settling the mind, doing the shamatha practice, settling the mind in natural state. An image comes to mind. At that point, if you're doing the practice correctly, what are you attending to? The image that come to mind or the person represented by that image? Which one? Ooh, that's a lot of silence. <laughs> Pin drop silence. Both? Oh, looks like we need to... We'll have a second cycle, don't worry. For, for the remedial students. We'll come back. Somebody allowed... This is like... Remember I told you in debating? Tibetan debate? You don't say, maybe this? You say, this. Except for you're actually sitting, this. And then if you're wrong, you really know afterwards you're wrong. You really remember it. Because you said it so boldly. The mind is not the brain. <laughs> so prove me wrong. And if you do, wow, I'm going to learn a lesson. But if you don't, well, I've taken my stand. So now somebody with that boldness. What are you attending to? In the shamatha practice, settling the mind. Are you attending to the image that arises in your mind or the person, the human being, that's represented by that image? Which one? Oh, that was pretty nice. That was more satisfying. <laughs> What's holding you back? You bunch of shy people, you. I'm supposed to be the shy person here, you know, thrust into... You know, the role of teaching by Yeshadapa. That's right, the image. The image. That's it. The image is rising here and now in your mind. That's what you're attending to. And you're not letting that image draw you off to attend to the person. That's certainly valid, but not for this practice, right? And so, but now, contrary to that, in this practice, we're not doing shamatha anymore. This is for the cultivation of compassion, not for mental images. Mental images are not sentient beings, any more than a cell phone is a, mental, is a human being, any more than a brain is a human being. None of those are human beings. You know, you've got a brain. Everybody person gets one. Or there was one young woman in Germany, very interesting study, published in a very top-notch scientific journal, young girl, uh, maybe teenager, something like that, published a couple of years ago. She was born with half a brain, born with half a brain, quite normal, intelligent, good sense of humor, very balanced, and so forth. 
except for not up there. One half was just filled with fluid, and the other half was brain. Not hocus pocus. This was actually, you know, carefully studied. And you know what? She wasn't half a person. <laughs> Whole person. And then all the materialists say, oh yes, neuroplasticity, neuroplasticity. They wave their hands very quickly, like, don't worry, don't worry, we're still in charge here. Everything's under control. Don't let that be upset you. Neuroplasticity. Just believe me. A mental image is not a person. So we don't develop compassion or loving kindness towards mental images. Any more than you develop loving kindness or compassion for a fictitious character in a novel. Okay. But these images represent people. And it's people, sentient beings, individuals, for whom we develop loving kindness and compassion. And if they're not here and now, or if, if it's somebody here and now, like Kirsty's here and now, well, what I'm seeing, of course, is her, as I'm gazing there in her direction, there she is right in front of me, what I'm seeing is the visual appearance of her body. Right? Visual appearance of a body is not a person. Right? Visual appearance, that's what I'm getting. I don't smell you, I can't hear you, don't taste you, don't, I'm not touching you. So all I'm getting right now is the visual appearance of her body. But that's not a person. So I'm not going to develop loving kindness and compassion for a visual image. Right? Right? And then we say, yeah, but, but you're observing her body. Yeah, but her body's not her either. I'm not going to develop loving kindness and compassion for a body, for flesh and bone and blood and liver. And, yes. you know, it's not a human being. It's a body, right? Brains. I've heard they make very good soup. Isn't it called something bread? Something, something kind of bread in English. Where's the English? Sweet bread. What a nice name for brains. Sweet bread. The English have such an extraordinary imagination. Take brains, boil that crap out of them, and call it sweet bread. <laughs> Very cool. But they're not people, of course. Neither bold, boiled nor fresh. Either way, you know. Not a, it's not a boiled human being. It's not a fresh human being. Neither way. But here we are. But that's interesting, though. One, can one develop compassion, kindness, loving kindness, affection for Kirsty? Of course you can. But we're doing so by way of the visual impression of her body, by way of attending, oh, there she is, she's right over there. And what I'm seeing is a body, but that's not her either. But nevertheless, she's there. You can ask her, she'll, she'll tell you. Right? So when we visually perceive people, then we attend to them by way of their body. But they're not their bodies. And likewise, if they're not here now, people who are far off, we can attend to them still. We can attend to them, really attend to them. They become the objects of our attention, the focus of our minds, by way of mental images. The mental images are not people any more than a visual impression is a person, but it's by way of those mental images. So this is the fundamental difference between for example, this practice is meditative cultivation of compassion, where we allow these images to arise, and then by way of these images, we attend to the person. Now, in this practice, I would suggest focus on people who are still alive. Okay? Focus on people who are still alive. And so by way of the mental images coming up, you actually attend to them, whether they're living 100 miles away or 10,000 miles away, wherever they may be, your attention goes to them. Right? You really can. You really can. I'll tell one more one, one anecdote. It's a real nice one. 
from a several years back. I don't think I've told it in this retreat. I'm quite sure not. But it's quite interesting. I was leading a retreat just for scientists, for, uh, for psychologists and neuroscientists. It's been very, about maybe 30, 35 of them came. It was productive. And among the scientists who came was one really top-notch psychologist, quite renowned, quite distinguished, and very committed materialist. He'd come from a Roman Catholic background, really abandoned it, and became quite, mm, how do you say, strongly anti-religious. But he had an open mind, open enough to come to a meditation retreat taught by a Buddhist meditation teacher. So just open-minded enough, yeah? So he came. And I was teaching the mindfulness of breathing. Then I taught settling the mind, my regular old shtick. We got well into the settling the mind practice. And after a day or two of that, he raised his hand and said, a very interesting experience happened when I was doing this practice. You now know know exactly what he's doing. Just resting there. And then out of the blue came this very clear memory this man was about 60 or so at the time, roughly. Came a very distinct, detailed memory of a little girl I knew when I was a kid, like when I was 10 years old or so. And we completely lost touch. And I had no strong connection with her. She was just a little girl I knew when I was a little boy. But her name and the details and so forth, such detailed, explicit, and my strong sense, accurate memory. There was a very strong, intuitive sense. These were real memories. It wasn't some kind of just fantasy that I conjured up. They were real veridical memories, they call them. And I just found that very interesting, that my attention somehow leaped over decades of experiences and alighted upon this little girl that I knew. And up came this memory that was so detailed. And I found, just, I found that, as a psychologist, I found that very interesting. I said, yeah, cool. That is not at all uncommon, I assured him. It happens quite frequently. That we just have no idea why a particular memory comes up, but again, that, that sense that it's true, it's detailed, and, and you're kind of wondering why. Because this was not a trauma, not a big deal. I wasn't in love with her or anything like that. It was just a little girl I knew. So it was interesting. End of story, right? Not quite end of story. The retreat, of course, came to an end. And then within the next several days, then this psychologist, professor of psychology, research psychologist, he wrote me an email. He said something very strange happened just a couple of days after the retreat, I received this email from a woman who wrote me and said, Dear Professor blah, blah, um, you probably don't remember me, but you just came to mind recently. And I thought I'd just get in touch to see how you're doing. And I see you're a professor and so forth. But, and it was that woman, that little girl. And he said, Alan, I'm very skeptical of your belief system, but not quite as skeptical as I used to be. <laughs> so this is an anecdote. There's no pretense that this was a scientific study and that it proved something. No pretense of that. I know enough about science. No, no, this is an anecdote. At the same time, is it really satisfying to say? Is it, are you quite satisfied to think? Just jerk coincidence. The psychologist himself wasn't. He thought, there's something that our loving kindness and compassion, or even just our attention, because that's all he was doing, just our attention to someone. Is it, is it completely clear? Is it quite certain that our, the activities of our minds are isolated, taking place only within 
strict demarcations, borders, of my mind stops here, and it doesn't go beyond, whether inside the brain or inside the electromagnetic fields around. Of course, that has no border. They just go off in the inverse square law. Uh, are there really any true boundaries, a periphery, an edge to the space of the mind? And between two people, the space of one person's mind and the next. So might we be connected in very mysterious ways, thus far utterly unknown to science, but perhaps not utterly unknown by people who have explored the mind directly, which science has not yet gotten around to yet. Maybe it will one day. So it's an anecdote. But we can ask this question, when, that is, when, when engaging in the meditative cultivation of compassion, of loving kindness, it's a very important question. I, I went on longer than I thought I would, but then you should be expecting that by now, right? Um, when we're engaging in such practice, if we ask, and I'm following exactly the words of His Holiness here, who speaks for the whole tradition, so what's, your primary purpose of, what's your primary purpose of doing this? Why are you spending 24 minutes meditative, meditatively cultivating compassion, loving kindness through the practice of Donglen? What are you doing it for? And the answer is very quick and very swift and certain. I'm doing this to transform my own mind, to develop greater empathy, greater compassion, kindness, and loving kindness. I'm doing this to transform my own mind. That's primarily why I'm doing it. That's good enough reason. As one friend of mine commented, as a result of such practice, sitting quietly, maybe you're living in a cave for 20 years up in the Himalayas. I've known people who've done something like that. In which case, your explicit impact on the world, actually reaching out and touching someone, having a direct physical impact on the world, is negligible, right? But there you are. And I'll, I'll talk about one yogi later on that Andrea also knows. But coming back to this, the primary reason for engaging the practice, transform your mind, develop bodhicitta. And then as my friend commented, if this practice is done effectively, the practice is authentic and it's really working, then when you do step off the cushion, you do step out of your bedroom into the kitchen where your family is and you're preparing breakfast or what have you, you're off to the workplace, you're to the marketplace, wherever you're going, if as a result of your meditative practice, loving kindness, compassion, if as a result of that you are poised, ready to act compassionately as soon as the opportunity or the need arises, you're poised to respond with loving kindness, with warmth, with affection, because you're already, if that's the result, that it does, you're already to manifest in the world by way of your speech, by way of your physical behavior. That's a sign. Okay, this was not just a mental exercise. Some real transformation is taking place. That's a real indicator. Yeah? Does it really impact the way you engage with the people in your daily life? It does? Good. Then it's working. But we can come back to this deeper question more mysterious, into the realm of mystery. And that is, as we are attending to one individual who comes to mind and then fades back the appearance, fades back into the space of the mind, while, while that person carries on with his or her life, right, independently of us. And then another person comes to mind. As we are attending to one individual or one group after another with compassion, with loving kindness, is there, as we are doing the practice, is there any actual, or might there be, any actual benefit for them? Or is this really simply an inside job? Something that brings about internal transformation. But, you know, don't expect that you're sending off some kind of little microwave vibrations of loving kindness that actually zap the other person. 
Well, the story that I just told of the psychologist says maybe this is a real question. Maybe we don't have a knee-jerk, absolutely true answer. Oh, it's an inside job. Stop, stop asking the question. Then how do you explain that? You know? And so if we try to evaluate the efficacy of our practice, cultivation of compassion, love, and kindness, based upon did it work? We write them a letter. We get an email. We, we phone them up. I was practicing on you today. Feel anything? You know? If that's what it is, then don't get your hopes up. Right? Don't get your hopes up. You're looking in the wrong direction. That's not the primary reason for practicing. But could it happen? Could it happen? Taking that little anecdote as a teaser, a suggestion, a possibility. Might it happen? The answer is yes, it might. And it's not mere coincidence. In the Buddha, now, of course, I'm speaking from the Buddhist worldview. Not mere coincidence that is something actually may happen. It may have a real effect. And it may be, of course, a very benevolent, a very good effect. But then, then why not homogeneously? If I just choose 10 people and I practice equally for each 10, why don't they all 10 get the same benefit? Or all 10 get no benefit? Right? Because only one girl came to mind when this person was doing the settling the mind as natural state. Not all the kids he knew when he was a child. Only one. Why that one? Who knows? I certainly don't pretend to. Right? So the Buddhist answer here is, yes, it can happen. Yes, it can happen. And those instances, but it's still mysterious. What I'm about to say will not make everything, oh, yes, I, now I see with perfect clarity. Because the answer goes to karma. And that is where there's a very strong karmic connection between oneself and the person one is attending to. Where there's that strong karmic connection, that may be almost like the cord or the conduit that enables some real transmission, some type of actual effect to take place. But then who do, how do we know where the karma is? Right? But there it is. It does happen. And there are many, many anecdotes from the Buddhist tradition where a person is practicing Tonglen and it has actually a physical effect on the person that one is practicing towards. I won't give those anecdotes right now, but just rest assured, Andrea is my witness. There are, because I'm pointing to him, because he's a very good scholar. Uh, there are many, many accounts of that sort, where it actually has a physical impact. And the deeper, the more powerful the loving kindness and compassion, then the more powerful the effect can be. Right? So that's there. I'll give just one analogy, then I'll finally stop at the very short preamble. And that is, as you, as you probably know, I've had a fair amount of informal but quite sustained engagement with Tibetan medicine, uh, really all because when I first arrived in Dharamsala, I was invited into the home of the Dalai Lama's personal physician. And nobody spoke English, and so I learned Tibetan very quickly. And then before long, I served as his interpreter for many, many Western patients who came to see him for medical treatment. Uh, and then we translated a book together, and then he eventually came to America, and I did more translating. We translated another book of his teachings. But one, one of the things that came out of that, so I've never been professionally trained, not even close. I'm not a Tibetan doctor, but I had a lot of exposure. And one of the things he told me about was the, the secret pulse. It's very interesting. And Tibetans take it absolutely seriously. A secret pulse. Very interesting. And that is in Tibet, where Tibetan doctors, really qualified Tibetan doctors, were quite few and far between. You didn't have one for every village. And there were so many little villages. And of course, the only way you get from one village to the next would be walk, yak, or horse. 
But there weren't any roads. So they really had no wheeled vehicles. The Tibetans had virtually no wheeled vehicles because they didn't have any roads on which you could actually run a wheeled vehicle. So who needs a good road? What you need is a yak track or a horse track, and that's all they really had. So when a person got ill, let's say a mother, an elderly mother, got seriously ill. No, let's say, let's say her child. Her child gets seriously ill, and so ill that really they would fear to get the child on horseback and then have to maybe make one, two, three days' journey to the nearest doctor. But the child really needs medical care. So what would they do in a, in a dire circumstance like that? The mother would go. The mother would hop on the horse and go to the doctor and then tell the doctor, my child is sick. The child can't come too sick. It's taken care of by relatives. Please check the secret pulse. And the doctor, if he's really an incredibly well-trained, very accomplished doctor, will then take the pulse of the mother and look through her pulse. I mean, it's an incredibly sophisticated diagnostic method. I, I can't go into the detail. It's an unbelievable thing. And I saw him demonstrate it. It was unbelievable. I have to believe it because I saw it. But he'll look through her pulse, which is telling about the functioning of different organs all over her body, as, he, as you see three fingers um, going back, going to different depths and so forth. He'll look right through her pulse and look to the pulse of her child, the secret pulse. And well, that sounds like magic. Well, it's not magic. It's because there's this very, very intense karmic connection between mother and child. And if the, the doctor is extremely well trained, he'll be able to look through that, through her pulse. It will tell, tell him, of course, about her body and be able to look right through to the child's body and then make diagnosis and give a, give a prescription. Then she would take the medicine back and give it to the child. So this was believed for a good thousand years in Tibet. There was certainly superstition in Tibet. There's superstition here. There's superstition in Hamburg and in Germany and in America and Brazil, everywhere. There's people believe things that are not true. So maybe this is superstition. But the people who believed it were awfully smart. And Tibetans are very practical. People tend to get very practical when it comes to physical health, a lot of people. So there it is. That's the Buddhist view of, of traditional Tibetan medicine. And it's, how is that possible? It's not two strangers or next-door neighbors. It wouldn't work for that. But it's with a strong, strong comic link. Be able to see something quite mysterious connections, energetic connections, and then purely mental connections. So that was a long preamble, much longer than I thought it would be, but maybe not much longer than you thought it would be. <laughs> <laughs> Please find a comfortable position, and we will jump in. Settle your body, speech, and mind in the natural state. And calm the turbulence of the mind with mindfulness of breathing for a little while.
And simply let your awareness come to rest in the present moment without focusing on anything, without meditating on anything. Just sustaining the flow of mindful presence without distraction, without grasping, just for a very short time. Now let's venture into the meditative cultivation of compassion and begin with symbolically visualizing the deepest dimension of your awareness, pristine, pristine awareness, primordial consciousness, as a radiant white orb of light, quite small, in the center of your heart chakra, center of your chest. Let your, let your awareness drop down there Imagine this orb of light being utterly, primordially pure, radiantly clear, luminous, and of the very nature of compassion and loving kindness. Now, from that basis, let your awareness be open, expansive, spacious. And without preference, without directing your attention here or there, simply see who comes to mind. When the spirit moves you, when you feel like it, pause, linger, and by way of this mental image, attend to the person who is represented by this, and attend closely. the best of your knowledge, bring to mind the struggles this person faces, the challenges, the difficulties, 
physical, mental, social. Attend closely. What is it like to be this person? Of course, it may be one, it may be more than one. Imagine shifting now the locus of your awareness so you're attending to them not as individuals who come to mind, but imagine being in their shoes, viewing reality through their eyes, through their experience. back to your own perspective. And now with each in-breath arouse the yearning, the aspiration, may you, like myself, be free of suffering, of the body, of the mind, and be free of the causes of suffering. With each in-breath, And imagine whatever troubles them in terms of the suffering itself as well as the underlying causes. Imagine this symbolically in the form of a dark cloud. And with each in-breath as you arouse this aspiration of compassion, imagine drawing in this darkness, drawing it into the orb of light at your heart, which is fathomless, boundless, inexhaustible. With each in-breath, imagine drawing in this darkness and imagine it dissolving without trace in this light at your heart. as you boldly venture into this realm of possibility, by way of imagination, imagine with each in-breath that the burden of their suffering and its causes lightens, dissipates, evaporates, breath by breath. And they find the relief from that burden.
imagine them becoming free as all the darkness vanishes into the light of your heart where it's consumed without remainder. the appearance dissolve back into the space of the mind. And then see who else comes knocking at your door and practices who's just done. Now let's turn to the meditative cultivation of loving-kindness, once again allowing the awareness to be open and spacious. See who comes to mind. Once again, attend very closely, as if this person were here and now, right in front of you. Imagine this person with all of his or her own aspirations, yearnings, and hopes, joys and sorrows, wishing for happiness just as you do. And to the best of your ability, bring to mind the specific kinds of hopes, aspirations, yearnings that this person cherishes.
with every outbreath arouse the yearning. May you, like myself, find the happiness you seek. And may you cultivate its causes. And with every outbreath, imagine from this inexhaustible source of light at your heart. Imagine a cascade of radiant white light flowing forth from this orb of light, embracing, suffusing this person, filling the person with this light of loving kindness, light of joy. With every outbreath, Imagine this person realizing his or her own heart's desire. Let your attention rove and continue practicing as before.
release all appearances and all aspirations. Release all grasping and let your awareness come to rest in its own nature. Still, clear, and pure. So we're all very well aware of the strategy of Atisha and the sequence of these seven points of mind training, of dealing with the wisdom teachings first and then moving into the teachings on compassion and bodhicitta, beginning the theme of, again, the left hand of wisdom supporting the right hand of compassion, but then the two, two thumbs touching, indicating the union the integration of wisdom and compassion. And in fact, in the actual practice as well, if one is kind of springing off from the brief discussion this morning about how if you really do fathom the nature of dependent origination, it highlights, it accentuates the emptiness of all phenomena. If you really probe in the emptiness of phenomena, it actually highlights how all these phenomena that are empty of inherent nature actually do arise as dependently related events. So an, and just as there is that synergy, that deepening of insight into both dependent origination as well as emptiness, when it's a very balanced, middle-way approach. Likewise, in the cultivation of the kind of this synergistic cultivation of insight, the vipassana, realization of emptiness, and the cultivation of relative bodhicitta, the same thing can occur there as well. And that is when the practice is very, very balanced, the wisdom practice, the more deeply that one gains some experiential insight into the manner in which all sentient beings are arising, again, in this process of dependent origination, not isolated, not independent, but actually all arising in relationship. And through that very realization, then compassion is deepened. 
And likewise, this was when cultivating the bodhicitta, cultivating deep, deeper and deeper compassion. That, in turn, can accentuate and deepen the realization of emptiness. You know, as one moves out of this kind of enclosed sense of I am, as someone separate, and is really attending to others, as Shantideva so brilliantly presented, attending to others as if they were yourself. As if they were yourself. Actually doing this shift, this rotation, using the power of imagination, and actually imagine looking back upon oneself as a person, as a person who comes to mind from another person's perspective, and then shifting back, and shifting with another person, and shifting back. It breaks down the sense of one's being absolutely located here. I think mothers throughout the world have known this for, for millennia, how the sense of identity, is, the sense of your own identity as a mother is in relationship to your child, is absolutely does not stop at your skin. Right? When you see your child maybe just fallen, is crying, crying, really, really hurt, maybe bleeding, You don't know the child. I'm, I'm speculating here. I haven't been a mother for a long time. <laughs> but you don't know the child's suffering by inference. Right? It's not, a, it's not a logical process. My child has fallen, blood is falling, screaming loudly, therefore must be suffering. I am feeling compassion. I don't think it ever works that way. Does it? The sense of identity is extending way out beyond the skin. The child hurts, you hurt. Right. It is said that the Buddha's compassion for sentient beings is non-dual. Not looking at us from afar and feeling, suffer, feeling empathetically compassion, sympathy for us way over here, but actually experiencing the suffering from our own perspective, which is at the same time Buddha's perspective. So a profound relationship between insight into emptiness and dependent origination. And when they go well, the insight into emptiness absolutely does not undermine the sense of connectedness, of warmth, of affection, of empathy, of compassion, because one can't find this, because the person doesn't inherently exist, and therefore no one to be found. Just the contrary. But deepening of insight into emptiness actually gives a much greater depth to one's compassion. Now, another distinction, maybe not so obvious that it even needs to be addressed, but I saw this come up in the news. And that is, we are, as we all know, I'm, I follow the news every day. I want to be in touch with the world, and that's why I do it. It's part of my practice. And there's so much misery in Syria right now. 100,000 people have perished in the civil war. No end in sight. Seems like a stalemate as of right now. Five million refugees. And recently, since we've been in retreat, now there's very clear, rather unequivocal evidence that the government or individuals, some forces within the government, actually move beyond conventional weapons to destroy their own civilians uh, or people, Syrians, but actually use chemical weapons. It's quite clear now. The UN che checked it out. It looks pretty definitive. Killed maybe 1,000 people with chemical weapons. Well, there was moral, tremendous moral outrage. We hear it especially from the United States. Moral outrage. You've crossed the line. You've crossed the line. And so there was a lot of furor, a lot of public outrage we should bring in, we should strike, we should bomb, we should send in missiles, we should, you know. And then, an and, but the American government, the American people actually were not really for that. A clear majority said, no, we're not for it. We don't want to do this again. We've already done Iraq, Iraq we've already done Afghanistan. Maybe three time, third time's not the charm. Maybe we just don't need a third time to be bombing another country that has not attacked us. And so another idea came. <laughs> 
initiated by Putin, of all people, from Russia, initiated also by the Secretary of State. So I won't go into a whole lot of detail here, but the idea was, let's bring in, if the Assyrians will agree, just have them turn over all their chemical weapons, and then no, we won't bomb, we won't strike. Just tell, say, but give up all your chemical weapons. And lo and behold, the head of Syria said, yes, I will, I will. So it looked like, okay, maybe the problem solved without bombing anybody and killing more innocent civilians. But what really struck me, and, and didn't surprise me, I have to say, there was one po American politician and said, I, I don't like that. I don't, want, I don't like this peaceful resolution. I don't like that they merely give up their weapons. I want them to be punished. There we go. I want them to be punished. That person may feel that he's being compassionate. So much suffering. So much suffering inflicted by the government on their own people. So much suffering. And then feeling empathetically, all these refugees, all the people whose homes destroyed and so forth, one may feel, no, I'm feeling empathy, I'm feeling sympathy, I'm feeling compassion, and therefore I want to punish those people who created so much suffering. It's not compassion, it's called hatred. It's called malevolence. That's what the government was inflicting on its people. That's what the rebels were inflicting upon soldiers in the, you know, working for the government. Malevolence, fighting malevolence, and now the Americans come in, oh, we want to join the malevolence party too. We want to punish somebody. We want to kick some ass here. And we're not satisfied if it's a peaceful resolu resolution. Nobody got punished. Well, I don't think that surprises any of us. Right? It's not confined to some stupid American politician who doesn't know the difference between compassion and malevolence. This has been going on through all of human history. I feel so much compassion for you, I want to kill you. And as the Buddha said, animosity is never healed with more animosity. Animosity is healed only with an absence of animosity. This is incredibly important. That the compassion has to be even, including for Assad. He's a sentient being. Like you and me, he's a sentient being. I would suggest, I think probably is likely, he probably has some pretty strong mental afflictions. Judging by his behavior, I will draw an inference there. I think some strong mental afflictions. They must be very painful, and he's certainly inflicting a lot of pain on other people. He has been doing so for years. Perhaps of all the people in Syria, perhaps he is the most worthy of compassion. The karma from that will not be good. So the compassion has to be even. And it's a, word, it's a message that we have from the wisdom traditions all over the world. So an enormously important dis distinction. Whenever we experience what's called self-righteous anger, or in Moral indignation. We often may call it compassion. More often than not, I think it's probably hatred and malevolence. Compassion for one side, which is then basically a form of attachment to this group, and then hatred for that group. And so we say, what's new here? This has been the problem all along. Attachment here, hatred there. Why should we bring in this wonderful word compassion to something just the same old, same old? So let's move now to the classic to say analysis is rather a cold word, but I think it is an analysis. It's from Buddha Gosa. It's very helpful as we cultivate compassion to have a very clear sense of what's meant by it in this context. Because we all have a word for compassion in our respective native languages. We all do. But there's no guarantee that when we find that word in our own language and we see how it's used commonly, that it means the same as karuna in the Buddhist tradition. 
they may both be called compassion, translated as compassion, but maybe there are different connotations. Maybe it's significantly different here or there. And so it's very widely believed. And I know this from a good friend of mine, Paul Ekman, outstanding psychologist, really, really good, and a very thoughtful man. He's had wonderful conversation with His Holiness Dalai Lama. He's written recently a short, kind of, very short book on compassion, very thoughtful. And he refers to compassion as an emotion. Well, there's nothing new there. A lot of people think it's an emotion. And they're not wrong. They're not wrong. He's not wrong. He's drawing from a whole tradition where compassion is widely regarded by many people as an emotion. There's nothing wrong with that. The Buddhist understanding of, of compassion is not an emotion. Is there an emotion with it? Of course there is. Empathy is an emotion. It's a feeling with. The, the mother's child is crying and the mother feels with the child. That's an emotion. Right? Another person is sad, we empathetically feel sad with them. And then there are neuroscientists looking for the neurocorrelates of that. It seems like they found them. Very well, very good. But in the Buddhist understanding, compassion is not an emotion. It's not simply a feeling. It is an aspiration, and that's different. It, if the aspiration isn't there, it's not compassion. And so one may be watching a documentary or watching the evening news and seeing the misery, the misery, the grief, the conflict in a place like Syria right now. And one may so empath em feel such strong empathy for the people who's, who've lost their homes, whose loved ones have died, and so forth and so on. And one may watch and weep when they just feel, just break down and feeling oh, it's too much to bear. It's too much to bear. And one may feel, I feel such compassion for these people. Not yet. If that's all it is, is you're weeping, and you're feeling very deep, sad, and very deeply sad and distressed. That's not compassion yet. It's empathy. It's sadness. It's empathetic sadness. We call it sympathy. The question comes, what will that sadness lead to? We've all experienced it, whether it's watching a whole country, whether it's watching an individual. Some of us have loved ones who've suffered greatly. There's psychological problems, physical problems, interpersonal problems. We've all witnessed it. And we've all experienced empathy, right? the sadness, the feeling with. But the question comes, what comes from the sadness? What does it give rise to? And I'll suggest not an in in inclusive, that is, not the whole picture, but I'll suggest three possibilities. One feels deeply saddened with and for another person, their travails, their grief, their misery. And then one just feels more misery and more sadness. And perhaps, very likely, in some cases, a feeling of helplessness. Like there's nothing I can do. And that makes one sadder. And when one thinks about that person, one just feels sad again. So that sadness is just basically giving rise to more sadness. It's in a spin cycle. It's in a loop. It's not going anywhere. It's just sadness. And especially if there's no sense of no hope, no, then it's, we can call that despair. And just let that spin on, and you may become chronically depressed. That would be one cause of depression. The brain chemistry comes second. The mental activity first. Mental activity influences the chemicals in the brain. That should be obvious. And the real cause here is not the chemical activity in the brain that was triggered by this empathy. It's an effect of the empathy. And then you see the physiological cause. Okay, so that's one possibility, which means that it's useless. In fact, it's worse than useless. It's just making you unhappy, right? 
So you have, your you have your unhappiness about your own life, disappointments and so forth and so on, and then you just compound your own personal unhappiness with an unhappiness for the world, and that makes you walk around unhappy, which means then other people can see you and they feel compassion or maybe sympathy for you, and then they feel really sad that you're so sad, and it makes them sad, and then it makes their spouses sad, and it makes their friends sad, and then you've just set up a chain reaction of let's all be sad together. That's, well, as we'll see, that's not compassion. That's called sadness, despair, grief. That's one possibility. Not the only possibility, for sure. Another possibility I've already reviewed. We see some, some group is suffering, <coughs> and then we find someone, a government, an individual, a political, a political policy, a governmental policy. It can be abstract. It can be all kinds of things. And we see that person caused this suffering. That policy, that company, that group of people, they caused that suffering. And then now we've got a target. Punish. And so what was empathy now finally has an agenda. It arises as a desire. Punish. Retaliate. Crush. Immobilize. Make them suffer. At least make them stop but it's actually malice. So that's a possibility. Out of empathy comes malice, right? And of course, maybe you can implement that, and then somebody sees now you as the malevolent one because you are actually behaving in malevolent ways, and they, say, they see the destruction you've done because you created some misery, and they say, look what you've done. You're the bad one. And then they self-righteously retaliate against oneself, and then it's no end in sight. So empathy may give rise to malevolence, to hostility, and to violence. We know it's happened countless times, and always justified. But they deserved it. I had a right to do this. My anger is justified. My hatred is justified. This is like saying my cancer is justified. My polio is justified. I have a right to have polio. I have a right to have tuberculosis. Crazy. It's just an affliction. There's a third possibility, too, though. Out of that great potential, that energy of empathetic sadness, may arise compassion. It is not malevolent, not retaliatory, not apathetic, not hopeless, but is an aspiration. And if and only if the aspiration arises, do we call it compassion? Right. So, I think that's very helpful. I find it very practical. So, in Buddha Gosa's brilliant analysis of each of the four measurables, I'll run through this very quickly, fairly quickly. I think a lot of you are familiar with it already. He speaks of what he, what he literally calls the near enemy. In modern language, you'd probably call it the false facsimile. But the near enemy of compassion being despair. Despair, grief, but despair, I think, really captures it best in English. Where that empathy comes up, and then there's a sense of hopelessness. And instead of blossoming into an aspiration, you see, there's no reason for me to have an aspiration because there's no hope, so why shall I desire something that can't happen? And I won't. Therefore, it's kind of like it comes up, and then, oh, and it dies. And it just falls back into despair. 
And then now you become the object of somebody else's empathy, maybe compassion. So it's called the near enemy, the near enemy, because it really can look a lot like compassion. It's a facsimile of compassion. You see maybe tears and sadness, expressions of sorrow, expressions of sympathy and so forth. So, wow, that person is very compassionate. Look, it really got to him. It really got to him. Look, look at the strong response. This person is very compassionate. Except for it's not. Because if it's not manifesting or blossoming into an aspiration, if it's just sadness, it looks like compassion and it's not. And in fact, it actually may undermine compassion. Because compassion is an aspiration with some hope, some vision, venturing into the, into the realm of possibility and seeing there is really potential here. And despair snuffs that out. Snuffs it out. Says, no, it's not possible. It's not possible. It's just a miserable, hopeless situation. So you might have one person who's compassionate, another's not. And the person who's just experiencing the despair may snuff out the compassion of the person who has some vision. They say, no, no, you're being unrealistic. It can't happen. It'll never happen. The conflict between Israel and Palestine, and the list goes on and on, never happened. Global warming, will we solve it? No, people are too stupid, they're greedy, they're short-sighted, there's nothing we can do about it. Just watch it happen, it's going to be a catastrophe, etc. Well, those people look like they're being friendly, they look like they're being helpful. They're not being helpful, because that's not compassion. It's an near enemy of compassion, the false facsimile. That which is diametrically opposed to compassion, which is called the distant enemy, Again, the near enemy seems to be on your side. It's like a spy who gets into your camp, like two, two, two armies warring against each other. And the near enemy is like a person, a, a, a spy from the other side, getting on your side, wearing your uniform, and saying, I'll help out, I'll help out. It's a near enemy. It's actually an enemy, but it seems so near that you think it's my friend. Oh, yeah, sure, help me. Whereas the far enemy, you can see they're wearing a different color uniform. They're pointing their guns at you. They want to kill you. They tell you, we're here to kill you. All right, that's a far enemy. That's nice and straightforward. This is what's diametrically opposed to compassion, and that which is diametrically opposed to compassion, you can figure out linguistically. And that is, if we define compassion, as we do in Buddhism, as the heartfelt aspiration, may you be free of suffering and the causes of suffering, that which is diametrically opposed to compassion is the aspiration. Once again, not just a feeling or an emotion, but the aspiration. May you find suffering and the causes of suffering. And we can call that cruelty. So professional torturers are very good at that. They find the person that they're paid to torture, and they know what they want. They know that they're dealing with a sentient being there, somebody who has feelings, and they want that person to suffer, to experience the causes of suffering, to maximize that. Don't do it too much so that they die, not so little that they can find it quite bearable. Find just push the limit. This is professional torturers. I know people who have been tortured by professionals, and that's what they do. They push it right to the limit. Don't kill them. Don't let them pass out. Oh, then all the fun's gone. Or I'm not doing my job. So maximize the suffering, the causes of suffering, but be careful. Not too little, but not too much. They pass out or they die. So that's cruelty. And my sense, I could, well, it's just, an, it's just a, per, a personal perspective, I guess. But my sense is of all the vices that we can imagine, of greed, of avarice, of arrogance, narcissism, jealousy, and so forth and so on, we have certainly a wide array of vices uh, to which human beings are prone. My sense is that the worst of them all is cruelty. I know that in a very practical sense, if I had a next-door neighbor, and that next-door neighbor 
had certain vices. The one I would most wish that next door neighbor not to have would be the vice of cruelty. So there it is. That which is diametrically opposed to compassion. What is the proximate cause? Again, part of Buddha Gosa's analysis. What triggers, what catalyzes the arousal of this genuine aspiration of compassion? And he writes that it's seeing the helplessness in others who are afflicted by suffering. And that is, if they're suffering, but they're perfectly capable of getting themselves out of the suffering, they know what to do, and they're doing it, then kind of you can kind of relax. I'm sorry you're suffering a lot, but well, I congratulate you. You're doing a good job. You'll be out of it soon. So carry on. Stiff upper lip, but I'm glad for you. You'll be free soon. So it doesn't really arouse that much compassion because it's been taken care of. Job, it's been done. But if you see those who are suffering and they really don't have the means, the knowledge, the skillful means, they don't have any method, any strategy, they're helpless and you witness them suffering, that may very well arouse empathy. But there's a point that I've not seen explicitly in Buddhaghosa, but it is ever so important. And that is if, and it's seeing not only if they're suffering, that you really sense it, not only are they helpless, they really need help, but the third is there is a real possibility of that suffering being alleviated, perhaps even just being dispelled altogether. You see that possibility. You have that much imagination or that much intelligence or experience. But you see, it's not, you see for yourself, it looks hopeless for them, their side in the sense that they, they don't know what to do. They are helpless. But from your perspective, you see, you may be helpless, but this is not hopeless. I see the possibility of freedom or at least the alleviation of suffering. Therefore, there's something that can be, can be done. Therefore, aspiration may you be free of suffering and its causes, is a reality-based aspiration. It is not based on the current reality. It's based upon the realm of possibility. It is possible. And it is that possibility that I aspire to become an actuality. When that's there, then we're kind of doing almost like a, really an analysis. What, what causing additions in this Pratita Samudpada, dependent origination, what needs to come together for the effect of compassion to arise? Seeing the suffering of witnessing that, experiencing that empathetically, their helplessness, seeing a real possibility for relief, and then, as if it were your own suffering, then the very natural response is, but of course, just as I wish to be free of suffering, and I will aspire for that, I think, that if I think there's some chance, well, in the same way, for the same reason, of course, I wish for you to be free of suffering and its causes. So that's the immediate catalyst. So one meditates, one cultivates through the practice of Donglen, for example. And then one may want to take stock on occasion. How's the practice going? Is it working? So we know, for example, with shamatha, it's transparent, isn't it? It's crystal clear. If you're practicing shamatha, you have very clear criteria. Is the practice working or not? And what are those criteria? That your practice of shamatha is it's effective. You're practicing correctly. It's working. What are the criteria? I can give you a big hint. Three of them. In order. That would be a nice end game. Yeah, that, that would be a nice game. It would be really nice to arrive at the end of the rainbow. And 
bliss, luminosity, and non-conceptuality. I've had many interviews with you, a lot of you by now. Nobody's come in and said, bliss, luminosity, non-conceptuality. <laughs> Nobody said that yet. <laughs> a little bit of bliss here, a little bit of clarity there, a little bit of quiet there, but whoo, not yet, right? So one day, one day. But in the meantime, in the meantime, in the second and the third week of this little eight-week retreat, this little hors d'oeuvre of a retreat, feeling a bit more relaxed, a bit looser, more at ease in your body and mind, a bit more stillness, a bit more composure, centeredness, a bit more clarity. Those are it, those three. So the practice is working. And in that sequence, if you say, oh, I'm really, really getting really good stability, the vividness getting really sharp, of course, I feel like it, it's as tense as a wound-up barbed wire fence. It's not working. Top-heavy. Insufficient relaxation, maybe good stability, vividness. It won't last. I know it's coming. You're going to get stressed out, burned out, and then I have to come and try to clean up the mess. You know? If you say I'm getting really relaxed, then they say, all right, then I can kind of relax. You may get a bit dopey, but I think we can fix that one. No major damage done. So there it is. But that's for, for shamatha. So, but, but now for cultivation of compassion. That's really now what this text is dealing with. How do you know that it's working? That, again, one might go for the, for the end game. You experience inconceivable compassion for all sentient beings who you feel are like your only children, and you sense all sentient beings as you being your mother and father, and, and that would be really nice. That's a good end game. That's called... Boundless compassion. Maybe even Mahakaruna, great compassion. But, but until that happens, it's not like wait, 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 and then after you know, a lifetime or 30 years or something, finally it happens, and just a lot of waiting until then. That's not how the practice works. It's something very practical. And that is your practice is working. If any movement, any impulse, there's a good word, any impulse for cruelty is subsiding, and by cruelty, I don't mean you know, like being a professional torturer. That's intense. That's extreme. No, just the cruelty of a word of sarcasm, a cruelty of a word of abuse, a put-down, a cruelty of just treating people unkindly, retaliating, punishing them, making them feel bad intentionally. Any impulse, no matter what they've done, no matter what they've done. When you see that however people treat you or treat other people, that that impulse for making others suffer and experience the cause of suffering just is not in your repertoire anymore, or really diminishing. Your cultivation of compassion is working. And when does it fail? The end of the analysis is the final point. When does it fail? If your practice isn't working, it's going awry, it's, going, it's, got, it's getting derailed. What's the indication of that? Your practice is not working well. Is as you're attending to the suffering of others, you're attending to others malevolence, their greed, their stupidity, their selfishness, their short-sightedness, their many vices and many mental afflictions and all the junk, all the awful stuff that is catalyzed by these mental afflictions. And when it tends to this and brings it to mind, brings to mind the enormity of mental afflictions in the world. The Buddha gave a discourse called the Fire Sermon or the Fire Sutta. The Fire Sutta. It's really intense. It's from the Pali Canon. 
And he just says the world is ablaze. The world is ablaze with delusion, craving, and hostility. How can one disagree? The evidence is shouting from all sides. And so one may immerse oneself in that, seeking to cultivate compassion. And what actually is occurring is just a slow, slipping slide into sadness, into depression, grief, and despair. That's when the practice is not working. Not working. So I think it's a really clear, brilliant analysis. A little bit more here. Ah, yeah, I think just one anecdote, and then we're finished. Yeah, that's pretty. But it's a lovely anecdote. It's again from personal experience. Again, to the blah. This, and you, you, because he came to Italy, so you must have known him, yeah? Probably translated for him. Yeah. So I only met him once, because he, he spent like 35 years or so in solitary retreat in the mountains above Dharamsala, where I spent about five months in retreat. He spent 35 years. And uh, Genlam Rimba was my mentor, and I lived right next door to him when I was up there. He was up there 25 years or so. But in 1992, so I'm just now referring to an anecdote I alluded to, but now with another twist. Uh, 1992, it was Francisco Varela, it was Richie Davidson, it was Clifford Saron, and then the fourth neuroscientist was Greg Simpson. Very, I, I, I missed it. It was tip of the tongue yesterday. But Greg Simpson, another very good neuroscientist. He's doing outstanding work nowadays, developing software for helping people with ADHD develop you know, greater attentional balance. Really wonderful work. So these four outstanding scientists. And then I was the, the tag along, I got to interpret. So we went up to the mountain. So you know the story about that monk who was watching the video and so forth. Well, we spoke with a, a number of yogis up there. Some agreed to collaborate, some for very good reasons, very graciously said, no, I will not collaborate with you. But one who said yes. And I think they were all really, they were all really outstanding yogis. It wasn't like the good one said yes and the bad one said no. For very good reasons, some of them said yes, and for very good reasons, some of them said, no, I won't collaborate with you, but I wish you well. One of them said, as these scientists came up to study facial expression and EEG and all this kind of stuff to try to understand compassion and attention skills, one of them, this is a tangent, uh, said, oh, when he, when he learned their agenda, what they wanted to do to understand how meditation works, he said, oh, I, you, you'd like to understand how meditation works and you want to study my brain and behavior. No, I won't collaborate with you. Um, but if you'd really like to understand compassion and attention, I'll be very happy to help you. The way to understand meditation is to meditate. <laughs> and I'll help you with that. And they said, thank you. And then look for the next yogi who would collaborate. And among the yogis they came, they came to the senior most one, Geshe Yeshe Topten. And I think all of the scientists were just tremendously moved by him. They were just moved by him. There's one photo that Cliff took and you just look at the face and your heart melts. There was a smile, a warmth, a kindness there that you just couldn't, you, you couldn't miss. It was so spontaneous, so utterly genuine. And this yogi invited the scientist in, into his little hut with a video camera going and so forth. And he let them put the EEG cap on his head and doing his practice. And uh, it was just a lovely encounter with him. I, I know all of the scientists were deeply moved by his presence by just the kindness that flowed from him. And here he was, he spent most of his adult life as a solitary yogi. But boy, the compassion was so real, so evident. And one of the scientists, it will be on this note that we end for today, 
one of the scientists asked him, because they, they, I think they recognized. Uh, we, we came up here to study compassion, to understand compassion. We found one. There's no question about it. This man really, it's so obvious. This man is truly a compassionate individual. And so they, found, they felt they had found an expert, an expert on compassion. And they really had. And they asked him a wonderful question. He said, when, I think it was Cliff Saron, perhaps, I'm pretty sure, who was then became the head of the Shamat Project, the scientific principal investigator. They asked him, when you experience compassion, do you feel sadness? As the compassion arises in that moment, when it's not just empathy, so now you know. The aspiration, you're really, your heart is filled with aspiration. Scientists knew this. They, they, they knew the Buddhist definition. That when you experience compassion, do you at the same time experience sadness for those for whom you are feeling compassion? And he said, no. No, I don't. Prior to the emergence of compassion, as I attend to, and I'm paraphrasing here, but very close to what he said, as I attend to those who are in suffering, and the Buddhist is whole realms of beings, not just humans and animals, but whole realms of beings where there's intense suffering of all kinds. That as I attend to them, and my heart is moved by their suffering, empathetically, then yes, there's sadness, of course. Very, very deep sadness for the suffering of others. But then something emerges from the sadness, and what emerges from the sadness is compassion. And the compassion has a vision it is an aspiration, is attending to the sentient beings and is aspiring, may you be free of suffering and the causes of suffering. And there is that vision in mind of freedom. There is that hope. May you be free. And one envisions freedom, envisions the relief from the suffering and the underlying causes of suffering. So when the compassion arises, you move beyond the empathetic sorrow to this aspiration that is visionary, that sees a possibility, and you move beyond the sorrow, and you're filled with the aspiration and the yearning, may it be so, may it be so. And the suffering is in the past. I found that tremendously meaningful. And it really struck me there that for that to arise, there must be vision. We don't need that much vision to simply witness the suffering of others and to feel with them. It's good. It's good. But it doesn't even take much vision. But for compassion, there must be vision. There must be some wisdom. A sense of, the, of that which is not yet actual, but which could be. As you gaze into the realm of possibility, and you see that could become actual. May it be so. May it be so. And especially then when it becomes great compassion, not only may it be so, may it be so, good luck. May it be so, I shall make it so. It takes vision. There must be some wisdom there. But it also it really strikes me, it takes courage. I think so. I think it really takes some courage. Some Tibetans have a, a really good word. Sem shuk. Sem shuk. Sem is your heart-mind. It's here, not up there. And shuk means a strength. It's a strength of the heart. That 
whether you're attending to five million refugees on the outskirts on the borders of Syria, whether you're attending to whole realms of sentient beings like the animal kingdom or the animal realm, whether you're attending to the elderly all over the world, attending to those who are just not even having enough, they're beneath the poverty line, which is a very major fraction of the human population, just struggling to survive. Whatever you're attending to, your heart does not collapse. The strength of the heart is there. The aspiration is there. May it be so. I shall make it so. See, tremendous courage for that. I think so. So, so those are words of wisdom by people with very deep compassion. I'm a messenger, secretary, just translating, but with deep reverence. as it is so easy to fall into despair when we do gain a growing sense of the magnitude of the suffering in the world, to realize there are such beings in the world who are beacons of light, who have so deeply embodied compassion and skillful means with the wisdom, and are there on the front lines really bringing about the transformation needed truly alleviating suffering, the true heroes, these are called foul in Tibetan, the true heroes of the world are not those who can kill more people than other people or make a lot of money or gain great reputation, great status. The real heroes, the foul, they're called viras in Sanskrit. The real heroes that give us all hope are those courageous individuals who are there on the front lines effectively Passionately alleviating the suffering of others. And those heroes living in solitude, like Geshe Yeshe Topen. He's a hero to my mind. He's passed away now. Hero, truly heroic, of devoting his life to this ever-deepening cultivation of compassion. And then again and again, venturing out. Andre knows much more than I do. How many times did he come out? And what was the impact of his coming out? When a person who has cultivated such depth and then steps out into the world. What's the impact? Oh, then there's really hope. And then when we start reflecting, oh, may I become like that. Very inspiring. So it's balanced. The inspiration of witnessing such individuals. Balanced with an awareness of what needs to be done. So that's a little introduction to compassion. Coming from people who have very deep compassion. Okay. See you tomorrow morning.